Hey everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, reminding you to visit my webpage at www.thepublicsafetyguru.com. It's a passion project as well as these podcasts being a passion project, so I'm hoping to build a better blog and better, better forums, but I need some members and I need some feedback on what you need to be successful as an EMT, be successful in the public safety world, and during your promotional process once you have your dream job. So grab that pencil and paper and your thinking cap, and we will be talking about neurology and endocrine emergencies. But before we begin, we're going to have a little word from our sponsor. I'm just kidding. We're going to do a little review. So what is the definition of an ischemic heart disease? It's decreased blood flow to one or more portions of the myocardium. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to be throwing out some test questions at you. Going to give you answers A, B, C, D. So let's do it. A 74-year-old woman complains of heaviness in her chest, nausea, and sweating that suddenly began about an hour ago. She is conscious and alert, but anxious. Her blood pressure is 144 over 84. Heart rate is 110. And her PSO2 is 96%. She took two of her prescribed nitroglycerin before you arrived but still feels a heaviness on her chest. You should A. Assist her in taking one more more of her nitroglycerin tablets, reassess her blood pressure, and transfer care to ALS or transport. B. Transport her at once and wait at least 20 minutes before you consider assisting her with a third dose of her prescribed nitroglycerin. C. Recall that geriatric patients often have much more rapid absorption and elimination times, which means which may necessitate modifying the dosing of the certain drugs. Or D, give her high flow oxygen, avoid giving her any more nitroglycerin because it may drop, may cause a drop in her blood pressure and transport. If you answered A, you would be right. The reason why is she's still having heaviness in our chest. Remember, our people who are having an MI will feel like something is crushing their chest. I've actually had patients tell me they feel like an elephant is sitting on her chest. As well as, we can give her another nitroglycerin because her blood pressure is 144. And then her pulse ox is 96. So the answer is A, assist her in taking one or more of her nitroglycerin, I'm sorry, Assist her in taking one more of her nitroglycerin tablets, reassess her blood pressure, and transfer care to ALS or transport. Next question. Which of the following is a commonly accepted list of medications an EMT can assist the patient in taking or administer under the direction of a medical director? Now in this, you're going to have two right answers, but you need to choose the best answer out of the two. So here we go. A. Aspirin oral glucose, oxygen, prescribed bronchodilator, inhaler, nitroglycerin, and epinephrine auto-injector. B, aspirin, acetaminophen, oral glucose, insulin, prescribed bronchodilator, inhaler, nitroglycerin, and epinephrine auto-injector. C, any over-the-counter medication, oral glucose, and oxygen. D, prescribed bronchodilator inhalers, prescribed nitroglycerin, and prescribed epinephrine auto-injectors. All right, I'm going to spare you the drum roll on this one because that one was a little longer than I wanted. If you answered A again, you would be right. 
we can, as an EMT, we can give aspirin, oral glucose, oxygen, prescribed bronchodilator inhalers, nitroglycerin, and epinephrine autopins. The reason why this is right over the other ones is it has more of the medications we're able to give. Now, B had acetaminophen. Unfortunately, we cannot give acetaminophen. C, we can't give any over-the-counter medication. And D was the other good answer. However, A just had more of what we can do. So remember, when you are taking your next test, you're going to have to really read the answers here. We're going to get much more, our questions and answers are going to get much more difficult and more complex. Question three, what is the first medication that should be administered to a patient experiencing chest pain with difficulty breathing? So your answers, A, albuterol, B, aspirin, C, nitroglycerin, D, oxygen. If you answer D, oxygen, you are right. If you answered A, B, or C, you need to go get your firefighter application right now. Hashtag just kidding. Anyways, the reason why is we or you should have pulled out chest pain with difficulty breathing. Think back to what you carry on your ambulance. You do not carry albuterol, you do not carry aspirin, and you definitely don't carry nitroglycerin. So anything that you can really do right from the beginning is give your patient oxygen. You have just administered nitroglycerin to a 68-year-old patient. Within a few minutes, she complains of feeling faint and lightheaded, but states that she is having some chest pain. Which of the following would be the best sequence of actions? Now look, at we're asking you what would be the best sequence of actions. So here we go. A, advise the patient that this, is no, this, that this is a normal occurrence and administer a second dose of nitroglycerin. B, lower the head of the stretcher and take the patient's blood pressure. C, increase the amount of oxygen you are giving to the patient before administering a second dose of nitroglycerin. Or D, administer activated charcoal to prevent further absorption of the nitroglycerin and closely monitor the patient's blood pressure. If you answered B, you would be correct. Lower the head of the stretcher and take the patient's blood pressure. Okay, look, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to administer medications that are sometimes just going to have an adverse effect on our patient as well as the side effects. A side effect of nitroglycerin is a headache. That is not an adverse effect. It is a side effect. Adverse effects are those things that we do not like. So what it sounds like is happening to this patient is that we have given them some nitroglycerin and we have dropped their blood pressure. Feeling lightheaded is not good after nitroglycerin. Getting a headache after nitroglycerin is typical. So in this, we have to take action. This is where you lie your patient down because we want to, she's gone hypotensive on this, ladies and gentlemen. That's why she's feeling lightheaded. So let's lie her down so we can help with that lightheadedness as well as let's get a blood pressure. Let's see how bad her blood pressure dropped. So testing wise, if you see a test question where you give nitroglycerin and your patient all of a sudden has a dramatic drop in blood pressure, flip and do something. You're an EMT. Okay. We're going to lie him. We're going to lie her down, lie him down and possibly if outside of LA County, put them in shock position. Okay, remember, you're learning National Registry, not just LA County. So a dramatic drop in blood pressure requires us to take action. We're not going to be like, oh my gosh, what's going on with her? No. Let's go ahead and put him in shock position, take a blood pressure, let's see what's going on. How is nitroglycerin given? A, sublingual, 
B, eternal. C, lingual. Well, the answer is sublingual, B. Which portion of the heart, when weakened by a heart attack, is responsible for causing fluid to back up into and engorge the lung tissue? A, right ventricle. B, right atrium. C, left ventricle. D, pulmonary vein. If you answered left ventricle, C, you would be right. This is congestive heart failure. The left side of the heart has failed, causing the blood that's leaving the lung to begin to back up because it has no place to go. Remember, CHF will begin in the bases and then work its way up through the lung until the point that the patient has pink frothy sputum coming out of their throat. You are by the side of a patient complaining of severe chest pain that radiates into his right arm and neck. He is alert and oriented with an open airway and adequate breathing. His radial pulse is strong and his skin is cool and diaphoretic. Bloop, 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 bloop. That should be a big warning sign right there, ladies and gentlemen. Your partner reports his pulse is 84, respirations are 18, blood pressure is 86 over 62, and the SpO2 is 98 on room air. You have obtained a medical history and performed the secondary assessment. The patient states that he has had two heart attacks in the past and is allergic to aspirin and sulfa medications. Which of the following should you do next? Now, just to let you know, sulfa is morphine. Morphine is a derivative of a sulfa drug. So in paramedic world, that is a big deal. So A, are you going to transfer him to the stretcher and transport? B, assist the patient in taking a nitroglycerin tablet. tablet. C, administer oxygen and nitro and then transport. Or D, administer aspirin to the patient. Uh Uh-oh, we got some dilemmas going on now, so what is going to be the good answer? Put your thinking caps on. Let's refer to some of the lectures that you've had. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, your answer is A, transfer him to the stretcher and transport. Okay, so let's think about some of the things here that you should identify with. The patient has severe chest pain that radiates to his right arm or neck. Okay, so that that is a medical emergency. We have to deal with that. He is cool and diaphoretic. All right, well, but we have a pulse ox that says he's 98, so we're not going to give oxygen. Blood pressure is 86 over 62. We can't give nitroglycerin, and he has an allergy to aspirin, so we can't give aspirin. Now, I am going to tell you this one. I don't care whose class you're in. You should give oxygen to this patient. Now, unfortunately, you had no oxygen answers except the one that included nitro and you can't give nitro but in real world scenario and further testing if you have that option with oxygen you should have you should choose it you just got to see what else is going with the nitro so since we had we since we did not have oxygen by itself the only thing where we were able to do was transfer him to the stretcher and transport I don't like this question I don't like that answer because we are people who are able to act and do stuff for our patient Now, we do have some contraindications for nitroglycerin. Remember, a contraindication is the reasons why we would never, ever, ever give the drug. So, last dose was less than five minutes ago. Maximum dose has already been taken, which is three doses. Blood pressure is less than 100. The patient already has an altered level of consciousness. Or the patient has taken a sexual enhancement drug within the last 24 to 72 hours or the patient has a head injury. 
You are assessing a 73-year-old male complaining of an altered mental status and shortness of breath. The patient is conscious but confused. He is breathing at a rate of 120 breaths per minute. His pulse is rapid and weak, and his skin is cool and diaphoretic. An emergency medical responder provides you with the following vital signs. Pulse is 136, respirations at 20, blood pressure 168 over 88, and an SpO2 of 89. Family states that he is diabetic and takes insulin. He also has a history of hypertension, colon cancer, irregular heartbeat, and transient, transient ischemic attacks, TIAs. Which of the following should you do next? A. Administer oral glucose. B. Check the patient's blood sugar. C. Apply supplemental oxygen. Or D. Perform the secondary exam. If you answered C. Apply supplemental oxygen, you would be right for three reasons. First, Complaining of altered mental status. Hypoxia is already in the brain. Two, the patient is short of breath. C, skin signs are cool and diaphoretic. Boop, 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 boop. That would be shock. And he has an SpO2 of 89, and we like 94. So we have several reasons why supplemental oxygen is the answer. A 71-year-old female patient is lying in her bed and complaining of respiratory distress. She exhibits moderate dyspnea, crackles in both lungs, and edema to the abdomen and lower extremities. Supplemental oxygen is being provided to the patient by emergency medical responders. Her vital signs are pulse 132, respirations 18, blood pressure 138 over 86, and SpO2 at 95. Which of the following would be the best benefit to the patient? A. Administer four baby aspirins. B. Obtain a medical history. C. Elevate both legs to decrease swelling. Or D. Position the patient upright. If you answer D. Position the patient upright, you would be correct. The reason why is, number one, she's complaining of respiratory distress. Number two, she has crackles in both lungs. Remember, crackles and rails are essentially CHF. CHF, our patients are upright, legs dependent. Upright, legs dependent. Upright, legs dependent. Get it? All right, and her PSO2 is at 95%. We don't really care in this particular thing. I would still give this patient O2 regardless of that SPSO2. We're just trying to get you thinking about what is really going on with their lungs. So position the patient upright is the answer. Now remember the signs of right-sided heart failure. That is JVD, jugular vein distension, and pedal edema. Just remember that when you see that, you should consider your patient to be in right heart disease. On room air, which patient requires supplemental oxygen? A, 47-year-old female, temperature of 130.3 Fahrenheit, denies shortness of breath, and an SPSO2 of 91. B, 66-year-old female, generalized weakness, history of diabetes, and an SPO2 of 97%. C, 39 year old male, complaint of tingling in the hands, headache, respirations of 30, SPSO2 of 98, or D, 52-year-old male, chest pain, history of MI, and SPO2 of 95. If you answered A, 47-year-old female, temperature of 100.3, denied shortness of breath, and SPSO2 of 91, you would be correct. Let's take a, of the, let's take a look at the reasons why the other ones are not an answer. Well, the B, a 66-year-old female, generalized weakness, history of diabetes, has an SPO2 of 97. Eh, it's above 94. We're good. 
C. 39-year-old male, complaining of tingling in hands, headache, respirations of 30, SpO2 98, once again, C above. D. 52-year-old male, chest pain, history of MI, SpO2 of 95, once again, we're above that 94 threshold. That's the only reason why A is the answer. When administering supplemental oxygen to the hypoxemic patient with a chronic lung disease, you, A, recall that most patients with chronic lung disease are stimulated to breathe by increased carbon dioxide levels, B, adjust the flow rate accordingly until you see symptom improvement, must be prepared to assist his or her ventilations, C, begin with a low oxygen flow rate even if the patient is unresponsive because high flow oxygen may depress his or her breathing, or D, avoid positive pressure ventilation because the majority of patients with chronic lung disease are at increased risk of lung trauma. This question is a little bit more difficult, obviously, because we've got a lot of things going on, but the answer is B. Adjust the flow rate accordingly until you see symptoms of improvement, but be prepared to assist his or her ventilations. COPD and hypoxic drive do not withhold O2. So we talked about COPD patients. We, you and I, are carbon dioxide breathers, okay? We breathe based upon our carbon dioxide receptors in our brain. They do not. They lost those. They are now O2 breathers. So there is this theory, you've heard me talk about this in class, that if we give someone a COPD who's an oxygen breather oxygen, we can knock out their oxygen drive and they will go into respiratory rest. I'm sure somewhere in some part of no one cares America that this has happened and that's why they throw that disclaimer out there. Okay, I have never seen it or experienced it, but I had to learn it just like you did. So that's why we're going to start off some O2. We're going to titrate to the effect that we want. But in the back of our mind, we should be ready to assist the patient. But let me remind you of this. You should always be ready to assist the patient no matter what. That's why we constantly reassess our patients when critical every five minutes and when non-critical every 15 minutes. Now, since this lecture is about neural, we're going to talk about, briefly talk about intoxicated patients, otherwise known as ETOH. ETOH stands for, it's the ethanol alcohol, it's the chemical, I guess, mnemonic or whatever for ethanol alcohol, which is what alcohol is based upon. So in the medical field, we refer to it as ETOH. Okay, this is one of the most common causes of someone having an altered level of consciousness. Now, in regards to altered level of consciousness overall, you should always think AEIOU tips, Okay. So we're going to go through it as this is part of the lecture. So A stands for alcohol, apnea, anoxia, arrhythmia, and anaphylaxis. E is epilepsy and environment. I for insulin. O for overdose. U for underdose and uremia. T for trauma. I for infection. P for psychological. S for stroke. And remember, most strokes are ischemic. Hypertension is the number one cause of strokes. So we're going to switch gears now. We're going to talk about evaluating the level of consciousness. One of the tools we can use is AVPU, alert, verbal, painful, unresponsive. We could generally do this AVPU during our general 
assessment as far as general impression time. As I walk up, is my patient oriented or disoriented? Okay, uh, right off the bat, you're going to see if they're alert or not alert. You're, you're going to walk up and you're going to ask your patient the appropriate questions. Sir, ma'am, do you know your name? Do you know how old you are? Do you know where you're at? Dependent on those responses will determine if they're oriented or disoriented. So now we have completed A for alert. Now, if they didn't respond, how was their verbal response? Was it appropriate? Was it not appropriate? Did our voice wake them up? If that didn't happen, what about painful stimuli? Did painful stimuli get in a response? Or are they just totally unresponsive? At that point in time, we better be checking for a pulse. Now with ALOC, we're gonna be doing the same things that we do with other medical calls. We're gonna get sample. We're gonna consider AEIOU tips. We wanna get the time of onset. Was it gradual or acute? Was there any type of associated seizure activity? Remember, you are the eyes and ears of the hospital. Much of what happens in the field, we need to let the hospital know because sometimes when we get to the hospital, our patient is either better or worse. And sometimes it sucks when they're better because you're like, no, 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 I promise you, they really look like crap out in the field. But now they're like talking and everything. Well, that should be good. You should be proud of yourself. You did something to correct what was happening in their body. Now, we've talked about this. This is a three by five card, the Glasgow Coma Scale, okay? You should just make a three by five card to memorize what the Glasgow Coma Scale rating is. But let's just go through it real quick. We're going to be evaluating eye-opening, best verbal response, best motor response. So let's go back to eye-opening. Eye-opening. You get a four for spontaneous eye-opening. You get a three if you open your eyes in response to speech. You get a two if you open your eyes response to pain. And you get a one if you have no response. Best verbal response, you get a five for having an oriented conversation. You get a four for a confused conversation. You get a three for inappropriate words and two for incomprehensible sounds or a one for no sounds at all. And then under best motor response, you get a six for obeys commands, a five for localizes pain, a four for withdrawals to pain, three for abnormal flexion, two for abnormal extension, or one for none. That is the Glasgow Coma Scale. I don't like it because even a pet rock will get a three. Now, with a altered level of consciousness or altered mental status, we have to manage our priorities. So what are they? Airway, airway, airway. This is the major issue, okay? So we have to make sure that the airway is patent. We either utilize suction and adjuncts as needed. So when we're walking up to the ALOC patient, we want to get that airway open by the proper means. And once open, we have to maintain it. Sometimes this means even putting the patient in a left lateral position because they're post-dicto following a seizure. Next thing we're going to correct is B, breathing, another major issue. You as the EMT need to decide on how you're going to give this patient O2 if it's needed. Is it going to be by mask or by BVM? And then last, we're going to check circulation. This is, we're going to be checking skin signs and for any obvious bleeding, okay? These are our priorities, airway, breathing, circulation. By the way, this is nothing new. This should always be your priority with every one of your patients. Remember the Chris Cano algorithm to test taking. BSI, scene survey, general impression, then A. 
We fix A, then we move to B. We fix B, and then we move to C. We fix C, and guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We get to play. So we do have a general treatment regarding ALOC and neuroemergencies. So, first thing, maintain airway. Next, oxygenation. High flow via mask or BVM. Positioning. Are we going to spinally mobilize them or put them left lateral? Consider glucose pace. Psychological support always. Think, consider AEIOU tips and transport. Not too bad, right? So now we're going to move into specific illnesses and injuries. We are going to be talking about headaches, cerebral vascular accidents, otherwise known as a CVA, transient ischemic attacks, known as a TIA, syncope, fainting spell, weak and dizzy, seizures, and diabetic emergencies. So let's talk headaches first. This is one of the most common complaints we come across. Headaches can be a symptom of another condition or a neurological condition on its own. Most headaches are harmless and do not require emergency medical care. Now, in headache, sudden severe headaches require assessment and transport. If there's more than one patient, if more than one patient reports a headache, consider carbon monoxide poisoning. Tension headaches, migraines, and sinus headaches are the most common headaches we roll on. These are not medical emergencies. Tension headaches are the most common. They are caused by muscle contractions in the head and neck. They are attributed to stress. Pain is usually described as squeeze, squeezing, dull, or as an ache. Migraine headaches are the second most common. Thought to be caused by changes in the blood vessel size in the base of the brain, pain is usually described as pounding, throbbing, and pulsating, often associated with visual changes and can last for several days. Sinus headaches, this is caused by pressure that is a result of fluid accumulation in the sinus cavities. Patients may also have cold-like symptoms of nasal congestion, cough, and fever. Pre-hospital emergency care is not required. Serious conditions that include a headache as a symptom are hemorrhagic stroke, brain tumors, and meningitis. You should be concerned if the patient complains of a sudden onset severe headache or a sudden headache that has associated symptoms. Now let's talk about cerebral vascular accidents, CVA, otherwise known as a stroke or brain attack. Now, we're, I'm going to tell you this. In testing purposes, you're going to receive the word brain attack. Okay, just know a brain attack is a stroke, a.k.a. CVA. Please, in the field... Don't ever say brain attack. You will look like a complete moron. I don't know why we even are using that word, but that we are, okay? So just don't look like a moron. So CVAs account for 50% of all hospital neurological admissions. It's the third leading cause of death in the United States. Now, we have two types of CVAs. We have ischemic, which are obstruction, embolotic, and thrombolytic. This accounts for 85%. And then the other type of... CVA is a hemorrhagic. This is the one that the actor Luke Perry just died of. Now, a hemorrhagic CVA is intracranial hemorrhage. Causes are hypertension, ruptured aneurysms, arterial venous malformations, and bleeding disorders. It basically, the hemorrhage displaces the brain and shoves it through the opening where your spinal cord usually, or where your spinal cord is. 
There are just so many different areas where your your brain could bleed from, but just know, just like your heart, there are various different arteries and veins that can possibly rupture, causing someone to have a hemorrhagic stroke. I will tell you this much. My father just two months ago was bleeding in five different areas of his brain and had been bleeding for months and showed no signs or symptoms until the pressure got so bad that he couldn't take the pain anymore. There was no trauma associated with this, and the doctors still cannot tell us why he started five different bleeds. So just, And they were in five different areas of his brain, from the frontal to the occipitals to the parietal. So just know that, okay? So a brain stroke, brain attack, you can have the ischemic stroke, which is a clot that blocks an artery feeding the brain, and then we have the hemorrhagic, which... A blood vessel or artery blows, and then we have the hemorrhagic stroke. Signs and symptoms of a CVA. So signs and symptoms vary by location and size of the affected vessel or bleed. That's so true. Like I told you with my dad. My dad was literally walking around going to work with a bleed on his brain, and he didn't even know it. Well, I say he knew it because he had some subtle signs and symptoms such as a headache um, every now and then while talking. He uh, would lose his place during his conversation, and then sometimes he said that he felt like he passed out, like some, like he lost time. So I'm going to imagine that he did, that he was having these lucid intervals where he didn't realize that time had transferred. So this goes to show you that signs and symptoms can vary from person to person. So common signs and symptoms, though, are headache, aphasia, the inability to talk and understand speech, facial droop, hemiparalysis or hemiplegia, Gait dysfunction, nausea and vomiting, altered level of consciousness, unresponsiveness, and respiratory and vital sign changes. Now, this is that patient that has facial droop on one side, and then the opposite side will have the weakness or total paralysis. So, during your stroke assessment, we're going to get sample. We want to know if this has previously happened to our patient. The time of onset, we have a three-hour window, okay? More than three hours, doctor at the hospital or at the care at the hospital level will change. The time, the time last seen, the patient's time, they were last seen normal. Any seizure activity associated with this? Headache, nosebleed. Does the patient suffer from dementia or delirium? Now, you need to learn the Cincinnati Stroke Protocol. This is a national registry thing and though we have our own assessment in LA County you need to learn national registry because you're going to test national registry so this is a three by five card until you can memorize it so we're testing for facial droop arm drift and speech and our response could be normal response or abnormal response so let's break this up facial droop ask the patient to show teeth or smile Normal response will be both sides of face move equally. Abnormal response is one side of face does not move as well as the other. That's it. Just have them give you a smile and see what you see. Arm drift. Ask patient to close eyes and hold both arms out with palms up. Normal response would be both arms move the same or neither arm moves. The latter response requires a retest because it may indicate that the patient did not understand the instructions. Abnormal response is one arm does not move or one arm drifts down compared with the other side. Speech. Ask 
patient to say the sky is blue in Cincinnati, giving us our Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale. Oh my gosh, someone's a genius. But regardless, normal response is patient uses correct words with no slurring. Abnormal response is patient slurs words, uses inappropriate words, or is unable to speak. All right, so now we have our Los Angeles pre-hospital stroke screen because we want to do our own thing in Los Angeles and screw the Cincinnati stroke assessment because we don't like it. And I can't say that's the reason why, but it's probably something pretty close. Uh, After 30 years of being in public safety, yes, I have become this cynical. And guess what? You will too. Okay, what are we looking for? Face smile and grimace, grip and arm strength. So what we do is we ask our patient to once again smile. Depending on what we see, we'll determine if it is normal or not normal. Grip. I will have my patients squeeze my fingers and I will see if the grip is the same. And then arm strength. I have them put their arms out like in the Cincinnati to see what happens there. That's the LA County one. I would probably memorize the Cincinnati Stroke Assessment because I think you're probably going to see it on a test question, the final, oh, and that little thing called the National Registry Exam. Okay, so let's talk stroke treatment. Airway, airway, airway. Wow, where have you heard that before? Airway management is our most important thing here. Our patient may have lost the ability to be able to swallow. Okay, so that they're going to have oral secretion. So you're probably going to have to suction as needed. Ventilatory support, dependent on the amount of damage that has been done, your patient will require O2, but they also may require BVM, positive pressure ventilation. No oxygen if no SOB, and pulse ox is 95% or above. That's just a general rule. Positioning, Fowler's if conscious and no trauma. Left lateral if altered and no trauma, but if you suspect trauma, they're going to have to be in spinal mobilization. Major, major, major psychological support, ladies and gentlemen, especially if your patient is awake. I can't tell you how many times our stroke victims I had where I was treating my patients and they were just so agitated because they hear their speech, they know it's slurred, they lost the ability to move half their body. They are so scared they're going to die because they've heard so many stories about people dying after having the strokes. And then they don't know what type of quality of life they're going to have after this stroke if they do survive. Psychological support. Talk to them. Reassure them. Empathize with them. That is your job. You could mean the difference for a lot of your victims. Patients. Okay, so we're going to switch gears here and talk about transient ischemic attacks, otherwise known as a TIA. So, a thrombolytic particles cause intermittent blockage or spasms of a blood vessel. That's the definition of a TIA. Thrombolytic particles cause intermittent blockage or spasm of a blood vessel. Signs and symptoms must be gone within 24 hours. They are similar to a stroke, but transient. In other words, they go away. 35% of all thrombolytic strokes are preceded by a TIA. So, what's our treatment? the same as a stroke. Now, what I want you to take away from this right now is that we don't want you to be robots. You've heard me in class. I I can train a monkey to do various different things, okay? But we're not monkeys, all right? We are trained thinking EMS professionals. That's what you need. That's how you need to look at yourself. You are a trained emergency medical professional. You know what to do, but you also need to know why you do it. So, 
I could just tell you, if someone has stroke-like symptoms, treat it like a stroke. That's very true. But a TIA, it's the same thing. TIA is a stroke for your intensive purposes, okay? But you should know what a TIA is. I had patients that I couldn't believe. I, I would have lost money in Vegas. I would have doubled down that this patient was having a stroke. And then I find out they never had a stroke, that they were back to normal within 24 hours. So with that, that's, that's that reasoning. So the takeaway from this is that TIAs require medical attention. TIAs require medical attention. Oh, wait a minute. Did I say TIAs require medical attention? Yes, because in the field, even as a paramedic, I don't know the difference between a stroke and a TIA. We treat them the same and because the signs and symptoms are the same. Only a doctor will be able to determine if someone has had a stroke or a TIA. Now, there are some conditions that may mimic a stroke, hypoglycemia, postictal state, and a subdural or epidural bleed. All right, now we're going to talk about syncope, fainting spell. Normally caused by a brief loss of consciousness due to a transient cerebral hypoxia. A syncope should last less than 30 seconds, and the patient should immediately be alert and oriented. If prolonged unconsciousness or associated hypotension, then treat the patient for shock because this could be the patient could be in distributive shock. Okay, common causes are vasal stimulation, lack of oxygen, hypoglycemia, or seizure activity. You must differentiate other possible causes, which could be cardiac, hypoglycemia, a TIA, anxiety attack, or psychosis. So syncope, just think of a fainting spell. We're always going to be concerned with airway and breathing. We're going to position the patient in supine, left lateral, or shock if no improvement. We're going to monitor the vital signs and any associated signs and symptoms that we see, especially with loss of consciousness. So you may consider some blow by oxygen with this patient. Weak and dizzy patients. The weak and dizzy patient in itself is not a medical emergency, but we're more concerned with maybe the other signs and symptoms. Be alert for potential causes. Could it be neurological, respiratory, cardiovascular, endocrine, or infectious? Management is supportive. In other words, we are going to be looking for the other associated signs and symptoms and treat treat that. So we are being supportive in the weak and dizzy patient. They sometimes do require transport, but it's all going to be dependent on our assessment, your primary and secondary. Seizures. Seizures are uncoordinated, random, chaotic discharges of cerebral neurons. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, chaotic discharges. So we have some type of chaotic electrical activity in the brain. Some type of chaotic electrical activity in the brain, which causes the patient to go into convulsions, described as tonic-clonic movement. Epilepsy is a condition of reoccurrent seizures. So you probably have heard that people have epilepsy. Well, that's defined as a person who has recurrent seizures. Now, there are different types of seizures. We have generalized seizures, which can be, or we call it grand mal. A grand mal has three different phases. The first phase is called preictal, or the aura phase. The next part is called tonic-clonic, which is the movement, and then postictal, which is post-seizure. So in the aura part, some patients who have a history of epilepsy have reported that they get an aura right before they're going to have a seizure. Some have described seeing lights like a prism, while others say they taste metal in their mouth. 
Then they have their seizure, which that is the movement back and forth, uncontrollable. That's the tonic-clonic. And then the postictal is normally where we come into play where because the patient has been seizing, they have an altered level of consciousness. Now remember this as a rule. When someone is having full body seizures, they are not breathing. So the longer the seizure lasts, the worse it is because that means the patient's going to be that hypoxic. Now they normally will not tolerate a oxygen mask on them, so we're going to probably have to do a blow-by where we put the oxygen next to their face, keeping our safety in mind because they can be combative. Here's a 3x5 card for you, ladies and gentlemen, as you need to know the three things that will make a patient status epilepticus, which is a severe medical emergency. In fact, your test question will say which one of these is not status epilepticus. So you need to know what is so you get the question right. So three things. Number one, repeated seizures without full orientation between seizures. So a patient has a seizure. They don't wake up. They stay in that postictal phase. And then they have another seizure. Right then and there, their status epilepticus, this is a true emergency. Or continuous seizure lasting more than 10 minutes. So the patient has one long seizure more than 10 minutes. That puts them in status. Or having three or more seizures in one hour. You don't need all three. You just need one of those. 3% of epileptics will experience status in their lifetime. It is a rare event, but I can tell you I have been on many patients in my career that were in status. It is the underlying cause of the seizure that is hurting the patient more than the seizure itself. So the seizure is just the body's response. Usually the patient will come out of it with no other problems. It's that underlying that may be the problem. The slide here says consider hypoxia. No, they are hypoxic. So treat for it. Now I don't want you to get crazy with the following information. This is nice to know stuff as we want you to be thinkers. So causes of seizures, epilepsy, organic brain disease, medical conditions which affect the brain, cerebral lesions, biochemical disorders, cerebral trauma, metabolic deficits, congenital malformations, genetic predispositions, prenatal injury, postnatal trauma, infections, brain tumor, vascular disease, vascular disease, pardon me, hypoglycemia. Assess for AEIOU tips. Now we have something else that affects seizures. This is called factors influencing patients with seizure disorders. Here they are. Once again, nice to know. Hypoglycemia, stress, fatigue, febrile illness, large water ingestion, constipation, use of stimulants, withdrawal from depressants. Now, we do have some environmental stimuli that can affect people with seizures. Blinking lights, TV screens, loud noises, music, odors, being startled. Women could have seizures prior to menstruating, or women could have seizures because they, pregnant women, because pregnant women can have seizures because they become eclampsic. And once again, there's just a host of a lot of other stuff that can cause seizures. Now, seizures generalize. Patient may have an aura. Tonic is described as rigid muscles. Clonic is the repetitive muscle contractions. Clenching of the jaw, biting of the tongue, incontinence, and then postictal is sleepiness, confusion, and combativeness.
Under seizure assessments, we're going to use sample and we want to find their meds. Normally, we, what we find is the patient is non-compliant with their meds. This is usually the rule and not the exception. Here's what happens. Seizure medication sucks, okay? It just makes people feel bad. They don't like taking it. But what happens is they do take it, and then after a period of time, they realize they haven't had a seizure. So they don't like the way they feel, so what they'll do is they'll dose themselves. They'll half-dose it. And then eventually they realize they haven't had a seizure. So they stop taking their medication altogether, and then they have a seizure. The way seizure medication works is you have to maintain certain levels to keep the epilepsy at bay. With that, we also have patients who become, I don't say immune, but they, they become tolerant to their seizure medication and then have to take, they have to be prescribed a new one because they build up a tolerance to their current medication. So this is why we always recommend that when someone has a seizure, they should at least at the very minimum go see their doctor because it may be time for a seizure medication change. So during that assessment, especially about the seizure, we want to know how long it lasted, how many times they seized, and was there any loss of consciousness between or was there any loss of consciousness gained in between the seizures? I think I said that wrong. In other words, did they regain consciousness in between the seizures? <sighs> okay, that was a tough one. You're going to conduct a physical exam as we would. You're going to do your standard ABCs, check the level of consciousness, and then note any other findings such as tongue laceration, head trauma, any wounds caused by the seizure activity. Were they incontinent to urine, bowel, or both? So what happens when you come across the patient who is actively seizing? Well, our number one response is to protect them from injury. So we're going to move nearby objects, and we're going to protect the patient's head. Airway plays an important role here, but we don't want to force the airway open, so we just want to protect it while they're having their seizure. Once the seizure activity starts, you may have to suction because, once again, remember, they may have some oral secretions. Um, if they are actively seizing, do not force anything into the patient's mouth. I can't tell you how frustrated I get when I watch TV or movies and someone starts having a seizure and then some actor says, oh, we got to get something into their mouth so they don't bite their tongue. Or, I mean, sorry, so they don't swallow their tongue. I'm like, swallow your tongue? Where the hell did that come from? What dumbass writer put that into the script? If you could swallow your tongue, guess what? We would swallow our tongue every time we ate. It's so moronic. We don't want to put anything in her mouth because once they have clenched down, we can literally get our fingers bitten off because they have that much force. So nothing in their mouth. We're going to give oxygen as needed, and then we're going to position the patient in the position that they're, they need to be in. So if they're still semi-conscious, left lateral, if they have hurt their neck, then we're going to consider spinal precautions. Definite psychological support. I actually, in these, when I have my patients that are post-dictal and they're very confused, because remember that, they're confused, I will have one family member talk to them. The family member that they're usually closest with so they can start focusing on the voice and realize, they're going to realize that voice is someone they know and it's going to bring their anxiety level down. Very, very important for your safety. And then, don't be surprised if the patient says, I don't want to be transported. Once they're in 3 GCS 456, they're going to tell you, I don't want to go to the hospital. If they have epilepsy, this is something new to them, so don't be surprised. Of course, you're going to have them sign AMA. Now, we do have some complications with seizures. Number one is hypoxia. 
It's the most common cause of death. Trauma, hypothermia, hypoglycemia, aspiration, and dehydration. Some common seizure medications are Tegretol, spelled T-E-G-R-E-T-O-L, Dilantin, D-I-L-A-N-T-I-N, and the famous Phenobarbital, P-H-E-N-O-B-A-R-B-I-T-A-L. That's seizures, ladies and gentlemen. So now we're going to be jumping into endocrine emergencies. Just an FYI, we're getting very close to the end of this lecture. Endocrine systems secrete chemical messengers, known as hormones, into the bloodstream and elicit a response from the target organs. Diabetes. Approximately 10.3 million people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with diabetes. An estimated additional 5.4 million have undiagnosed diabetes. Approximately 10% have type 1 diabetes and the remainder have type 2. The reason why we're talking about diabetes after mentioning endocrine is this is the endocrine system. Your pancreas secretes insulin and when that does not work, this is why you are a diabetic. So these are bullet points, bullet points on my slide that I'm just going to be throwing out there for your own edification. Glucose, one of the basic sugars in the body. Hormone, chemical substance produced by a gland. Insulin, a hormone enabling cells to metabolize glucose, produced by the beta cells located in the insulates of Langerhans within the pancreas. Located in the insulates of Langerhans within the pancreas. Langerhans is spelled L-A-N-G-E-R-H-A-N-S. And in case you need it, insulates is spelled I-S-L-E-T-S. Diabetes mellitus is a disorder in which the body cannot metabolize glucose. Classic symptoms of uncontrolled diabetes are the three Ps. Polyuria is frequent, plentiful urination. Polydyspia is frequently drinking to satisfy continual thirst. Polyphagia is excessively eating as a result of cellular hunger. This is actually a rare symptom. So what's going on with our whole insulin system? Okay, so remember this. Your brain is the only organ in your entire body that, is, that does not, does not need insulin to process sugar. Every other cell in your body needs insulin. So this is what happens. Your body senses it needs glucose. So it starts sending out different signs to tell you, hey, let's go eat. Now what you decide to eat is on you. So once you eat and now your body starting to convert that food over to glucose, your cells still cannot use that glucose. So then your pancreas senses it needs to send out some insulin, and it does if everything's working properly, and then insulin attaches to your cells, making them permeable to glucose only. The glucose goes into the cell, the cell eats, and everything is working fine. Unfortunately, diabetes do not, diabetics do not have this process happen. So we have two types of diabetes mellitus, type 1 is insulin-dependent diabetics. This person does not produce any insulin. Some type of autoimmune response destroyed the beta cells of their pancreas, so the pancreas is unable to produce insulin. Type 2 diabetes is a non-insulin-dependent diabetic. This person produces inadequate amounts of insulin. This is often due to obesity, old age, pancreatic disease, and resistance to insulin. 
Now we have another medical emergency where we can have too much sugar in our system, otherwise known as hyperglycemia. This is called diabetic coma. So signs and symptoms, frequent urination, thirst, dehydration, dry warm skin, rapid weak pulse, possible hypotension, non-healing wounds and infections, air hunger and Kuzmal respirations, remember those hard fast respirations we talked about, a sweet fruity odor on their breath, slow progression to unresponsiveness, and ketoacidosis otherwise called DKA. Now, hypoglycemia is also known as insulin shock. Its signs and symptoms are dizziness and headache, aggressive or confused behavior, rapid progression of altered level of consciousness, hunger, fainting, seizure, or coma, deep, rapid breathing, pale, moist skin, sweating, rapid pulse, normal or slightly elevated blood pressure. Hypoglycemia is the true emergency here. That's why we always tell you when in doubt, give sugar. Now, when we are conducting that sample history of our patient, these are some of the specific questions we're going to ask them. Do you take insulin or any pills to lower your blood sugar? Have you taken your usual dose of insulin? Have you eaten normally today? Have you had any illness, usually unusual amount of activity or stress today? Those are the questions you should be asking your diabetic patient. Now, as far as treatment, we're going to perform our initial assessment, give high concentration oxygen. Our position will be left lateral or spinal immobilization as needed. We're going to obtain some vital signs, and then we're going to administer glucose for both types of emergencies unless unresponsive or no gag reflex. And then we're going to transport. Unfortunately for diabetics, they have some long-term complications, which include arteriosclerosis, heart disease, CVAs, peripheral vascular disease, increased risk of infections, amputation, blindness, and kidney disease. Well, folks, that is it for the neurological and endocrine emergency lecture. If you guys can do me a favor, whatever podcasts app you're using, if you have the ability to be able to leave me feedback, please leave me feedback as well as if there's a rating where you can put number of stars, please do so as well. That would be awesome. It only helps me to build a bigger audience. And then as you guys have seen, I started to do ads. All I'm trying to do is get enough money to keep this podcast going for future classes. That's it, guys. So have a good weekend and study for your next block exam. See you guys in class. I'm <laughs> sorry.